Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. We must have talked about it at least a dozen times here on the show. The great decoupling from China, the event where businesses from across almost every industry are looking to either completely divest themselves from China or even just relocate part of their manufacturing process as a way of protecting themselves or even just hedging their bets. That if the worst were to happen, a single day's bad events won't completely destroy their supply chains. And whilst, yes, it is somewhat conventional wisdom these days to agree with that statement, a much smaller percentage of those people that agree then go on to ask the next question, which is, where is our manufacturing going to relocate to? Because manufacturing is actually quite a difficult thing to pull off and much more complicated than I think a lot of people realize. Just for starters, if we look around the region, Japan, Korea, and the US are probably too expensive to locate all your manufacturing in these days. Nations like Indonesia, Thailand, or Bangladesh, well, they don't really have the internal infrastructure set up to probably take this on yet. And even when we look at nations like Vietnam, Taiwan, or Malaysia, who do have very robust manufacturing and specialty manufacturing sectors, all of these guys have the fault of probably not being big enough to take on everyone. So then, almost inevitably, the conversation will turn to India. As, after all, it does tick a lot of the same boxes that China did right before their boom. It has lots of people, cheap labor, and a motivated leadership looking to attract outside investors and become a manufacturing hub. And whilst this is the solution put forward by a lot of people at the moment, I personally would make the suggestion that before we jump in and buy this car because of the sales pitch, maybe we should actually take a look at the internals of what's driving it and get ourselves a better understanding of the engine that the Indian state is currently relying on. Because what we found was a more complicated, convoluted, mismanaged, fragile, and yet with so much potential type of economy. It's an incredibly complicated subject. And overall, it seems the question that nowhere near enough people are asking right now is how strong is the Indian economy? And is it ready to take on the role of being the world's factory? Well, those are just some of the questions we're going to try and answer here today, and to take us through where India has been succeeding so far, and why so much of the world is looking toward Delhi at the moment as a potential second home for their manufacturing, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. An Opportune Optimism In terms of the role of India on the global arena, this political leadership under PM Modi has solidified its power within the country. Valina Chakarova is an expert in the field of geopolitics, with over 20 years of professional experience and academic background specializing in the relations between India, Europe, China, and Russia. Before founding her Austria-based consultancy FACE, Valina served as the director of the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy. On top of that, she's also a member of the Strategic and Security Policy Advisory Board of the Science Commission of the Austrian Federal Ministry of Defense, 
and serves on the peer board of the Austrian publication Defense Horizon Journal. So we're thrilled to have on the program today. India is very much reliant on energy supply from outside. This is also similar to what we are observing with China. In this particular context, uh, the war of Russia against Ukraine was in a sense a game changer for the Indian interests. Why? Because following the Western sanctions, India received access to cheap Russian fossil fuels. In fact, the shipment of oil, of Russian oil, to India increased significantly and it did enable the Indian economic engine to grow to a significant success, at least for the last 20 years as this big manufacturing power. And obviously, India is still lagging behind China in terms of manufacturing, but at the same time, it has a very, very good start when it comes to the digital revolution. So in a sense, if you take a look at the competition right now, when it comes to the uh, digital domain, you, you see these uh, two clear competitors, uh, United States and China, but you see also India being quite ahead compared to other powers. And that, I think, is going to be one way how India will try to steer economic success. Now, you do a lot of work on India and its role on the global stage, which is quite important to set up a lot of this conversation. So having looked at this country for a number of years, where do you see India's position on the global stage now and where do you see it going forward? Do you think it has the potential to become most countries' largest trading partner like China is at the moment? I do not expect that India will follow a similar approach in its relations with uh, third countries, be it direct neighbours or countries uh, in Asia, Africa, or Latin America. And I argue that India will follow a different pattern. It will, of course, seek to deepen its relationship with, uh, specifically with the countries from the Global South. During the G20 in India, it actually announced that it wants to be an advocate of the so-called Global South. It wants to actually advocate for the interests of 7 billion people, and it wants to steer the development agenda. So it wants to create platforms, political, economic, technological ones for these people. It wants to develop products for 7 billion people, contrary to, let's say, the agenda of uh, the West, which actually provides services and products, high-end products, for uh, those who can afford it, uh, namely, let's say, the richest one to two billion people around the world. And I argue that India is being non-colonial power. That means also a country that really will try to do things differently while becoming great power uh, on par with uh, United States, uh, China and the European Union. It's going to first and foremost think of the well-being of its own people and then second, trying to actually more or less create a very different narrative around the world now, the other important factor coming into this conversation is about the current political policy that India is traveling down, that policy being led by the current Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Now, Modi's been in power for nearly a decade now, and he is likely expected to win this year's upcoming election. So what do you see him doing differently in this next term that will propel India forward into this position? Uh, yes, I'm convinced that this new phase of the political leadership, which will be much more mature, and much more self-confident, starting with 2024. We'll also introduce some 
let's say, not so favorable or popular reforms as required. So not everything is rosy, obviously. But right now, as we speak, we have, of course, a group of 20 oppositional parties and movements that will compete with PM Modi during the election. Uh, we will have, of course, uh, a lot of issues linked to current geopolitical risks. India may face newly emerging terrorist activities, which is not going to be a phenomenon specifically linked to India. It's a global phenomenon as we speak. And in that sense, this will also affect societal changes. My expectation, of course, is that the government and the leadership, they want first and foremost to provide for the people, to uplift a lot of people from poverty. And I expect that there will be a lot of investment into infrastructure, specifically because the infrastructure was lagging behind for decades. So in a sense, uh, I expect that a lot will be invested in building airports, roads, highways, because this is something that connects and connectivity in such a huge country. And of course, when it comes to infrastructure, I do not mean only the transport or energy or connectivity. I mean also, of course, digital infrastructure, telecommunication. So all of these things of modernity that will be visible to people. What I also expect is that we will see a boom of new important industries because the, the world is being split into two parts and we are going to see alternative supply networks facilitated by the United States and China with allies and partners. And India is capitalizing on both worlds, which is why a lot of supply chains will be diverted towards India. So all in all, we will see a really unprecedented rise of India emerging on the global arena, not just as an economic power with the best demographic outlook, but actually as the next big geopolitical player on par with the uh, United States and China. Now, the Indian economy is showing some promising signs with the country becoming more and more prominent on the world stage. And if you watch international news as much as I do, it does seem like almost every world leader wants to do deals with India at the moment, that Modi's the hottest ticket in town. With every single day, more articles strewn across Twitter discussing India being the new home for Western companies, looking to decouple from China. And after all, they do have cheap labor, lots of people, and sit right on a global shipping lane three of the qualities that China also possessed before their massive economic boom. And this all sounds lovely, but what happens if we take a little bit of a look under the hood and start to look at some of the economic fundamentals at the heart of the Indian economy? Let's actually sit down and understand what is currently driving the Indian economy forward. And to help us understand that, we turn to our second guest. Part two, the fractured foundations. China started as a low-quality, labor-intensive manufacturer. Sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, it became the workshop of the world when it became a member of the WTO. That's what it was the position it held for a decade and a half. But I would say in the last 10 years or so, especially in the last five years, it has become a competitor at the very high end of the manufacturing spectrum. The most visible sign of that 
is its auto exports. 10 years ago, China and India exported about 100,000 cars a year. And now China is the world's largest exporter of cars. China is a dominant presence in electric vehicles. China is a world-class economy. India ranks well below countries like Vietnam and well below Bangladesh. So zero comparison between the two countries. Ashoka Modi is an Indian-American economist and visiting professor at Princeton University. Before joining Princeton, he was also the assistant director of the International Monetary Fund's European Department and also a former member of the technical staff at the World Bank. In addition to that, he was also the former chief IMF representative to Ireland during Ireland's Troika bailout. But when it comes to today's subject, he's written quite a number of books and papers specializing on the makeup of the Indian economy, including the now famous India is Broken. So we're thrilled to have him on the program today. India, even if it wanted to be less protectionist, it's not geared to being competitive in the world economy. And there are essentially two reasons for that. One is it has a very poorly educated labor force. It's always important to emphasize how crucial a educated workforce is to export competitiveness. If you look at the workforces in East Asia, starting with Taiwan, then Korea, then China, and then Vietnam, they pretty much have world-class education, at least at these primary and secondary levels, and increasingly now in China's case, at the university level. India has very select number of high-grade, high-quality universities, but its primary and secondary education, for want of a, a, a better word, are simply pathetic. The Stanford University specialist professor in education, Eric Hanushek, estimates that Indian education does not provide the basic skills for an internationally competitive labor force to 85% of its students. The corresponding number in China is 15%. And sometimes people balk at that statement because they say, well, do you really need education to manufacture garments and shoes and bicycles? And the answer is yes, absolutely yes. Now, we'll cycle back to education in a bit, because first I want to talk about protectionism within India, because it is quite a fundamental part of the Indian economic policy. Now, India for a long time had held a highly protectionist economy, with the country having very high tariffs and very strict import quotas as well as limiting the type and amount of outside companies that were able to sell products into the Indian market, or to try and protect their own industries at home. Now, add to this the restrictions on foreign investment that were present within the country that would limit the inflow of foreign capital into the country that could have been used to buy new technologies or improve the efficiency of the products they had. This raft of protectionist policies was standard Indian procedure right up until the end of the 1980s going into the 1990s, where after decades of this policy, the country had been pretty much driven into the ground, nearly bankrupting the Indian state and requiring large bailouts to keep it going, with India only implementing the reforms and walking back some of these protectionist policies upon these bailouts. But whilst they did implement a lot of those reforms that were put upon them, and many would argue it was the beginning of the rise in the Indian economy, there are some of those protectionist policies that are either starting to creep back into the Indian economy or simply never left in the first place. Now, I understand that protectionism can work in some cases, but with some of these re-emerging protectionist policies, do you think they're likely to be able to help them achieve the goals they're trying to hit? It makes things worse 
by being protectionist. And this government in particular has been heavily protectionist, raised tariffs left, right and centre, plus most tellingly chosen to stay out of the free trade agreement in uh, Southeast Asia. And the, the problem there is that by choosing to not be part of that, India has also foregone the opportunity of becoming something of a substitute as people are moving away from China because most of the business is going either to the RCEP countries or to the Central America. And so India doubly disadvantaged, it's not ready and it then because it's not ready, it shrinks back and does itself more harm. One of the most obvious signs of this protectionism and one of the first things that people will point to as an inhibitor of competitiveness for India has always been speculated to be its overvalued exchange rate, with the Indian currency being the rupee. Even the Indian Reserve Bank estimating that the rupee is overvalued by around 6%. Now, just briefly, for those of you who have experienced joy in your lives and didn't do economics as a major, oversimplifying here, but an exchange rate is how much currency you get in exchange for another currency. So for the sake of the argument, right now, if I gave you 100 Indian rupees, because of where the New Delhi government has artificially set the price, you would give me back $1.20 American. However, by estimates, if that currency was actually valued correctly, and the price was dictated by what the market actually felt it was worth, if I gave you that dollar, you should actually be giving me back about $1.13 American, not $1.20. Which doesn't sound like much, but when you're talking large-scale trade deals in economics, 6% can mean quite a lot. And whilst for India that does sound like a good thing, after all you're getting more USD back for that same 100 rupees, this policy does come with its own drawbacks. For instance, making exports out of India much more expensive, as we're effectively adding an extra 6% surcharge on top of every purchase you need to do using rupees, which is going to hurt the export competitiveness. To explain, if someone was trying to decide where to set up the new factory, deciding between India or Vietnam, even if Vietnam's manufacturing was 5% more expensive than India's, it would still actually end up being cheaper because of the exchange rate. And therefore all the jobs and industry I would have bought in with that factory are now going to Vietnam. Now some countries like India do keep their currency overvalued, which makes it much cheaper for their population to buy things. Some countries like the US and Australia let the market decide the price of their currency, and other countries like China go the opposite way, undervaluing their currency, making it even cheaper for people to use China for their manufacturing needs, and therefore making themselves more competitive in the international markets. But if we come back to India, India is trying to put itself forward as an export destination, somewhere you should be investing money into to be part of your supply chain. But just for starters, this overvaluation of the rupee is already going to seriously hamper that decision. Do you think this overvalued exchange rate that India is sticking with is holding back the Indian export market? And if so, why would they be sticking with the policy? The overvaluation of the exchange rate is a long-standing problem. It's a problem that goes back 60, 70 years. This is in contrast to the East Asians who have strategically used exchange rate devaluation to get a foothold in, in global markets. Now, of course, the world has criticized them for doing so, saying that they are eating other people's lunches, which is true, but that is how they've got ahead. And India has chosen to not do so. The reason is that there is a, an elite in this country benefit from it. They take holidays in Milan, Zurich, and uh, Singapore. They do their expensive shopping there. So for the benefit of the elite, we have a problem where we are not able to generate labor-intensive exports 
which are necessary for the vast majority of people to be employed. So if we were to take a look at where those people are being employed, we would see that the majority of Indians aren't being employed in tech or services or even manufacturing at the moment. But instead, the majority of Indians are still working in very basic, low-tech agricultural services, with the agriculture sector employing over 60% of all working Indians at the moment, and making up a staggering 18% of the country's GDP, as opposed to China, where agriculture only employs about 40% of the country and only makes up about 9% of the country's GDP. Now, this would indicate to most of us that the majority of India's workforce are still employed in a pretty low-productivity sector. After all, you can bring much more money into the country making semiconductors than you can by making carrots. But it's been a bane of the Indian government for years trying to move more of these people out of the rural areas and into cities and get them into jobs like manufacturing, with many people just choosing to stay out here and work in the agricultural sector, particularly after the massive amount of subsidies the Indian government does put into the sector to keep these people employed. Now, if the Indian government can't move these people out of the sector, they could at least look at making the sector more efficient or more effective. And hopefully that would give them the short-term economic boost that they're currently looking for at the moment. So if New Delhi was to look at, let's say, putting a lot of technology into the sector and making farming and agriculture much more productive and much more efficient, wouldn't that solve the problems that we currently see within the industry? Or frankly, the problems are much more complicated than that. And in all honesty, it's probably only likely to drive up the already staggering unemployment rates in the short term. Okay, so in agriculture specific, technology can be a very helpful aid. Now, it is true also that certain types of technology will be labor displacing. That said, we want people to move out of agriculture because agriculture pays your pitiful living. And the living in agriculture, if anything, is becoming worse over time because of falling groundwater levels and the climate crisis. The problem is not so much in agriculture, it's in the urban manufacturing. We do not have a vibrant enough urban sector which is going to employ all those people who are going to get out of agriculture. India is so dependent on, on agriculture, not because it wants or needs people in agriculture. Agricultural productivity is low, as you quite rightly point out. But because where do these people go? I mean, the hype has always been around moving Indians into the tech sector, where it's high productivity, it makes a lot of money, and India's command of the English language makes them much more suitable for doing IT and tech jobs working with Western firms. Is the tech sector ready to take on these workers if they are to leave the agriculture sector? Right now, there is this enormous hype in India about something that they call digital infrastructure. And what does the digital infrastructure do? It, for example, makes payments easier. So you can use your phone to make payments. And a lot of people in the urban areas will say, oh, well, we can make payments, uh, this, that, and the other. I say, great. How does it educate the kids? How does it provide public health? How does it make the cities more livable? We are choosing to not deal with our fundamental problems. I'm afraid that we are using sort of gimmicky technology to divert attention from some fundamental development problems, which unless we solve solved not purely by technology, but by a social and broader cultural change, 
we are not going to be able to deal with the vast unemployment problem that India is already encountering and will do more so over the years to come. And you're not wrong, the Indian unemployment rate is absolutely staggering, particularly when it comes to India's younger population. If we take a look at the youth unemployment numbers, we can see that recently it was sitting at a staggering 45.8% youth unemployment. And this figure isn't just in the unskilled sectors either, as youth unemployment figures in India amongst graduates still sits at around 42.3%. So there are just so many people currently unemployed in India at the moment. However, going through your book, you point out that one of the best ways to fix this counterintuitively is to actually put more people into the workforce, particularly women, as the female labor participation rate within India is actually really, really low. Right now, the female participation rate, which means women either working or actively looking for a job in India, is sitting at just 27.7%, as opposed to someone like Bangladesh sitting at 42%, or China sitting at 61%. For female participation rate, India is actually even lower than Pakistan, if you can believe that. So there is a massive pool of labor sitting there that could be entering the workforce, but just aren't being encouraged or aren't being allowed to enter at this point. What I'd love you to go through, as I think it's really interesting, is why would it be then that if there's already so many people in India currently looking for work who are unemployed, how would putting more women into the labor force actually help the overall economy and possibly solve that problem? The fundamental reason we want more female labor force participation is that it changes the broader culture and social structure of society, which we desperately need. Since the Industrial Revolution, when women entered the formal workforce, that is work outside of the home or in income earning opportunities, they then develop their own persona, they delay their age of marriage, they have fewer children, they invest more energy and time in educating their children. They are more attentive to the health of their children. And in general, the female labor force participation creates these broader social changes, which are an essential part of economic development. And so I would put female labor force participation on par with education, which I highlighted earlier, because unless we do that, we're going to remain very narrowly focused on things that do not actually achieve long-term sustainable growth. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let's unpack education here for a minute. And I want to do so by first running through some stats with you. 
Now, education is definitely an area where India is falling behind quite a lot of the world, with India's literacy rate sitting at just 77% compared to China's 99.83%, and with 71% of Indian adults not having an upper secondary education. In fact, the last time that India participated in the PISA tests, a standardized exam administered by the OECD across 70 plus nations, where 15-year-old students in various participating countries are assessed on things like reading, mathematics, and science. Now, the last time that India had participated in these tests was back in 2009, where India came in at 72 out of 73 participants, with India then subsequently withdrawing from all future PISA tests. So it's obvious that there is definitely work to be done at this end of the scale. But at the other end of the scale for education, there is also problems that India has to deal with, as India has a whole bunch of incredibly bright people within the country, but India suffers terribly from brain drain. One of the surveys my team pulled up here shows that out of the 100 top-scoring students in the country, 62 of them would end up moving abroad or studying abroad long-term, taking their brilliance and putting it to the benefit of another country. Now couple this with the fact that India's investment into research is much lower than the world average, pushing the country's scientists to go overseas in order to do their research, and we can see where problems really start to form in the education sector. Now, I know you're a big advocate of addressing this as a primary issue for India to go forward, but what sort of educational reforms would you actually be looking at? And is there a concern that if the Indian government does invest all this money into education, it's just going to push more of their people to seek employment within other countries? Right, so very reasonable question. I am not talking about university education. I'm talking about eighth grade children being able to divide numbers. I'm talking about fifth grade children being able to set uh, two, three digit uh, numbers from another two, three digit number. I'm talking about reading skills. I'm talking about a, a sense of motivation and discipline that is inculcated through the regular attendance of schools. A certain set of values that you achieve through peer interaction. That's what I'm talking about. And that is the fundamental basis for labor-intensive, relatively low technology production, which generates tens of millions of jobs. So these are not people I'm anticipating who will be attractive to American universities or certainly to American employers. These are people who will be attractive to manufacturers. Global manufacturers, that is the kind of education I'm talking about. So I'm not worried so much about the brain drain aspect in this context. So the other issue that the Modi government has tried to tackle is attempting to formalize much more of the economy. This means rather than cash being handed over to market, that people actually do transactions officially through bank accounts, through electronic transfers, that the income earned becomes taxable income. For consumers, this actually lowers the cost of doing transactions and makes government stimuluses and welfare actually much more effective to be doled out. But it also makes it much harder for citizens to dodge tax, which is quite good for the government, and gives the government a far better picture of the transactions actually taking place within the economy. Now, the Modi government has tried to address this by bringing in a complicated GST or VAT system, claiming that this will be the thing that pretty much formalizes the economy in India. But how well has that formalization gone? Do you think we have reached the levels of formalization that people were touting going into the program? We have not formalized a lot of the economy. 
Now, the connection between GST and formalization was a presumed one, and often the authorities will claim that they have in fact done so. Unfortunately, the data does not support that view. The formalization remains low, and in fact, that is a very severe problem because it also distorts GDP statistics. The reason the formalization is not occurring is that the GST system has become so complicated. Complicated because of the politics. Normally, you would want two or three GST rates at the most, ideally just one. But we have got now multiple rates to accommodate all kinds of special interests. So the result is that its implementation continues to be very haphazard, and especially for the smaller firms, complying with the requirements is very hard. Plus, there are lots of exceptions, again, because of special interest lobbying. So the GST system, while in principle a very sensible idea, has simply not had the impact unless there is broad-based growth, which creates more jobs. Ultimately, we cannot solve fundamental problems through narrow technocratic policy measures. We have to ask the basic question, how are we going to create jobs? The rest is all minor stuff. But surely if New Delhi rolls out some of these reforms, whether it be properly valuing the rupee or reforming certain sectors of the economy or trying to formalize it or bring in taxes, that's going to bring inflation into the economy. And with Modi going up for election this year, that's probably not something he wants to do if he can avoid it. So even though it may be the right thing to do, do you think Modi will look to avoid doing any sort of reform if it isn't politically feasible for him to do so? You raise a very good question. It's going to cause some temporary inflation and you might be absolutely right that the politics will not allow it. All I'm saying to you is, that as long as the rupee is as strong as it is, we can forget about all this talk about India becoming a manufacturing hub. We will always have a few isolated uh, examples of success. But just give you one example. There's been a lot of brouhaha recently about foreign investors signing up to make large investments in India. And Whenever the prime minister or Indian delegations go abroad, investors line up and say, well, you know, we are going to invest these large sums. And the money never comes. The uh, investment newsletters that I see these days from India says, we have a puzzle over here. All these guys say they're going to invest these billions of dollars. In fact, the amount of investment coming in has not only not risen, it has actually fallen in the last year and a half. Yeah. You've basically got an uncompetitive economy. What do you want to do about it? Why would somebody want to come and set up a uh, several billion dollar semiconductor plant when I can do it in a zillion other places? So there is some sense of entitlement there. Oh, we are a large economy. No, we are not a large economy. We are large only in the sense that we have a large population, but we don't have large purchasing power. That too is then deflected by saying, no, 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 no. We have a large affluent class. No, we don't have a large affluent class. We are deluding ourselves that we have a large group of potential consumers. No, India does not have a large consumer base. 
because most people cannot afford to buy the kinds of things that these companies want to sell in India. For example, India's population is 1.4 billion. About 10 million own iPhones. Maybe 6 or 7 million have a Netflix connection. There is a group of about 10 or 20 million Indians who maybe have the per capita income of Taiwanese. Yes, that's fine. And sure, because of the strong exchange rate, they do a lot of their shopping either abroad or they import their, their luxury goods. You can buy $400 Adidas shoes in Delhi or in Mumbai. Yeah, but that's not what's going to make the market. The market requires a mass base, which we simply do not have. So with that in mind, what if Modi was to wake up tomorrow and say, damn the political consequences. I don't care what happens about this election. He just wants to build up the Indian economy as fast as he possibly can. So he wakes up and he wants to revalue the rupee and build an export-driven economy. Could he simply just tank the reforms that China did and plop them down here in India? Would that you know, double the GDP in 12 months and bring the kind of growth that India is looking to see? To achieve a significant presence in the global economy, I would say will require at least two decades. Remember, that's approximately what it took China. The entry point of China is the early 80s. By the late 80s, it was becoming more of a presence. In the 90s, it then gathered more presence. And really, only in the 2000s, it came to full bloom. China had the huge advantage of a well-educated labor force, high female labor force participation. Therefore, if we do all the things that you have proposed, we will then need the next 20 years to scale up uh, a high quality education system, draw in women into the workforce. But that longer term process will require the support of these other broader social and cultural mechanisms that we are lacking right now. So I'm sure you've heard the adage, India will be a superpower by 2030. It's very hard to read any analysis in India and not see that phrase come up somewhere in the copy. But from looking at the macroeconomic trends, if Modi goes into this next term with pretty much the same economic policies as the last, and we continue down this road, what do you think the chances are that India actually achieves that goal? Look, this nonsense about India as a superpower and so on, just put that to the side because India has essentially developed into what the political scientists call a patron-client political system, where the authorities do not provide you with the fundamental public goods of education, public health, functioning cities, functioning judicial systems, a clean environment, and instead give you handouts. So all the parties are competing. We'll give you a bicycle or we will give you a motorcycle. We will give you a laptop. So everyone wants to give something in lieu of helping people stand on their own feet. And the the problem with that is that this is politically very attractive because if I am not able to educate my children or to keep them in good health, then these gifts are attractive to me. And so they become sort of a seduction, both on the part of the politician, as well as on the part of the voter. Well, you know, the guy helped me out. He got my son a job and maybe I should vote for him. So there is no, there is no pressing political pressure 
to do the kinds of things that you and I are talking about. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Economic issues like education, industrial reprioritizations, and taking advantage of favorable demographics are all important parts of an economy, but they're also all long to medium term things. Even if Modi was to sign a law today, the effects wouldn't be felt for a while. So what are these short term issues that could be addressed? What are the day to day things today that affect the economic competitiveness of the Indian economy? If I were a business person looking to relocate from China tomorrow, would India be a good place to set up shop today? Or is it a country where I have to wait until all of these things finally line up? Well, to answer that, we talk to our third guest. Part three, limping logistics. India has been growing at around 6% a year over the past decade. That's slightly lower than the rate at which it was growing the decade before. And conveniently, the two decades map up cleanly to the last two prime ministers, Manmohan Singh, who was actually an Oxford-trained economist, and then uh, in the past decade, Narendra Modi. Arjun Ramani is The Economist Global Business and Economics Correspondent, specializing in transnational trade, global finance, and international macroeconomic trends. Before taking this role with The Economist, he previously worked on the Emerging Markets Trading Desk with Citadel, and his previous research has also won the Kennedy Prize for Economics. On top of that, he's also just released a large written deep dive into the state of the Indian economy under Narendra Modi, and what effect these latest policy changes will likely have on India's economy going forward. So, we're thrilled to have him on the program today. In the 2000s, it was outperforming everyone besides China. In the past decade, it stayed near the top. Uh, you know, Bangladesh and Vietnam have slightly overtaken in growth rates, but it's still been relatively high. The big question, though, when it comes to India is its GDP per capita right now is about $2,500 per person. If you adjust for purchasing power, about $7,500. China is at $12,000 per person. And just you know, for the record, about 40 years ago, India and China were similar, right? So China completely overtook India. In the late 80s going into the early 90s were a particularly tough one for India, with the country nearly defaulting on several occasions. But if we go back to that point in time, it wasn't just India going through a bit of a tough period, as China as well had a whole bunch of its own economic problems. In fact, at this point of time, the Indian and Chinese economies were roughly about the same size. And since then, the Indian economy has grown in absolutely massive amounts. But China's has grown by much, much more, now being around four and a bit times the size of India's economy. So it can take us through how we got here and how there was not only two economic miracles, but two very different economic miracles here in Asia. So India only liberalized in 1991. So I think the answer is basically it's too little too late. So, you know, Deng Xiaoping came to power in China in, in the late 70s, opened up China's economy to the world. 
you know, invested heavily in infrastructure, making ease of doing business better. And so India could get there. But it's only in the last decade that India has actually created a true single national market. I think this is getting better, but I think the lack of infrastructure, the poor ease of doing business and too little too late in terms of uh, liberalization is probably the reason why manufacturing has been slow to take off. Now, one thing to keep in mind here is competitiveness really matters because you look at manufacturing purely as a share of employment or GDP, it was actually pretty high for India in, in, in the 70s or 80s. But then once it opened up to the world somewhat, basically manufacturing shrunk because India was uncompetitive. And so now the, the, the goal is to create a competitive manufacturing industry I mean, I think there's some risk to that in terms of the government's policy because they are genuinely improving the infrastructure, improving the ease of doing business, but they are also spending a lot of money on subsidies. So they have these production-linked incentives, which was this $24 billion plan launched a few years back, basically subsidizing firms when they produce goods that are made in the country. But the risk with subsidization is you you create inefficient production that can't actually compete globally when you remove your support. So I think the jury is still out on Indian manufacturing. So manufacturing is obviously a big part of the conversation here, but manufacturing is also quite a complicated thing to unpack with multiple factors impacting its final result. So for starters, let's look at the most obvious one, which is the wages that each country would pay to its workers to manufacture goods for the country. Now, when we compare India against China, we find that the median wage in China in 2024 is nearly 10 times higher than that of India's, with Chinese workers also on average being paid much more than the average Indian worker, particularly at entry level. So if that is the case, and it is cheaper to have Indian workers working the machines, then why is India not a larger part of the global manufacturing chain? So I think the relevant parameter is not the cost per unit of labor for a given hour. It's what is your cost of goods sold? It's what is your overall cost of production? to produce you know, one car, a marginal car, a solar panel, or whatever it is you're trying to export. And so basically, India is much less capital efficient than China. It's less productive. Its factories are less sophisticated. Its workers are also less skilled. And it doesn't have all the different suppliers that China has in, in Shenzhen, where if you want to prototype something really quick, try the new manufacturing process. Everyone is right there for you. In fact, CEOs who, who've given me stories when you go to Shenzhen, you can literally stay in your, your office in Shenzhen and all the suppliers will come to you and they will basically show you all the different parts in your supply chain. And it's just extremely fast and, and efficient to get production up and going. All the parts are right there. Whereas in India, the infrastructure is, is much worse. The machines, robots, et cetera, are less sophisticated. So I think the overall cost of production is less competitive than what the labor costs themselves would tell you. But that said, I do think that's changing. You're starting to see some interest from international firms to invest in there. You saw foreign direct investment pick up in 2022 and 2023. Now, just a bit back there, you mentioned unit labor cost, which is a large part of the conversation we're going to have here today. With the term unit labor effectively outlining that, hey, if I have a worker that can make one an iPhone in an hour that I can then sell for $1,000, your production per hour is obviously going to be higher than a worker who would be making a t-shirt in that hour that you could then sell for $1. And on the surface, that disparity makes sense on why the unit labor cost is so different between China and India. After all, China is making lots of electronics and components that you can sell on for a lot more money. But India is also moving into that space. In fact, Foxconn, a major part of the process of putting iPhones together, has started up a number of factories inside India, which gives us an interesting avenue to compare India and China together and see where the flaws in the Indian system are as rather than t-shirts or burgers where things can be different between countries, 
An iPhone is pretty much an iPhone. So if we take a look at the cost and production between two workers making the exact same iPhones with the exact same company, except one of those workers being in China and one working in India, we're going to start to see disparities between the two countries' manufacturing and logistical processes. So can you take us through first why Foxconn is setting up factories in India and where some of these Armenian pitfalls are likely to come in? So there's a interesting story in Foxconn has been planning to double their investments in India over the next year. They already have four factories in India. That's why something like 10% of iPhones are, are produced in India. And if you look at their factory in Tamil Nadu, and I've, I've spoken to some people who work at Foxconn about this, what's interesting is the Indian factory workers, they had no idea what they were doing at first, right? Uh, it's not easy to, to kind of make an iPhone and assemble all the complex parts and so forth. So they got workers to come in from Foxconn China to train the Indian workers. And that process takes a lot of time. But there are some things that are sort of cultural. Indian factory workers, actually Indian business in general, it, it probably respects workers' rights a bit more than in China. There's stronger labor laws here in terms of work hours. You know, people take their chai breaks. It's very important. Certain work practices are probably another reason for differential labor productivity. You see, a lot of people may not realize this or may not think about it too much, but a lot of the added costs that come with manufacturing are actually in the shipping and the distribution of the product. And to really illustrate this to the people listening, I want to sit down with you and go through a bit of a timeline that my team put together for this one. Now, what we'll do to really play this out is let's imagine two theoretical iPhone factories, both owned by Foxconn, both making iPhones. Now, if we start our experiment on the first of the month with one factory in central China, about 1,500 kilometers from the coastline. So we're going to say around Chengdu to Shenzhen. And the other in central India, about just under 1,500 kilometers from the coastline. So something like New Delhi to Mumbai. Now, these two theoretically similar Foxconn factories making iPhones will have some differences in labor costs and a few other bits and pieces, but should roughly be about the same. But as we run another timeline, we'll start to see which countries have advantages and where they have them. Now, once you account for the acquiring of the parts and the materials, the Chinese factory on average will have an iPhone in a box ready for shipping at around the 11 weeks mark. The Indian factory on average will have their iPhone ready in about 17 weeks. So only about six weeks difference between the Chinese and Indian factories. So at this point in the timeline, not a huge disparity between the two. But whilst the Chinese made phone arrives into the train station that afternoon and will be transported towards the port on a train doing about 65 to 70 kilometers per hour, the Indian iPhone will take a lot longer to get on the train and for that train to get going. As the Indian train system is still quite antiquated and has a lot of capital investment problems right throughout where the Indian cargo train will start to have real problems is that its travel speed on average is actually going to be less than 25 kilometers per hour. And this is where our first big infrastructure difference between the two countries really comes in. As whilst China has dedicated cargo train lines, taking it from the major manufacturing hubs or major mining hubs directly to the main ports, quite a lot of India's rail network is actually just add-ons to the old British rail network. With a real kicker, in fact, being that in most provinces by law, cargo trains are actually subordinate in India to passenger trains, with the two sharing the same line. So the cargo trains are forced to travel behind the commuter trains, who are not only much slower, but also frequently stopping and picking up passengers. Now with our scenario involving the train lines, our Chinese phone actually arrives in the port ready to go about five days later. And with the Indian one, it takes about 10 days to get to the port, once it's been processed, put on the right tracks and everything else. Now this is just the first hurdle we're coming up against, that India's rail network runs mostly at speeds of under 20 kilometers per hour. 
And to me, this seems like an obvious fix for the country. So what is actually preventing India from going down the same road as China and building cargo networks that would allow them to more quickly transport goods from the inner parts of the country out to the key trading ports? Land use is a really big part of this because for any one of these public infrastructure projects, you have to buy up a bunch of land, you need to bring down your railways and so forth. And that requires exercising eminent domain. So I think generally in democratic societies, these types of big infrastructure projects tend to, to go more slowly. I was talking to one person who is basically in charge of land use acquisition for a new airport that's being built in Mumbai. And he was like, if I need to acquire land for the airport when there's a village that is in the way, you obviously have to provide compensation. But a lot of people who live in these villages, they don't want to leave. And so even if you offer more, sometimes they're hesitant. But what you do is you basically say, hey, I'll hire your kids. I'll give your sons a job. And there's a big youth unemployment problem in India right now. Labor force participation is something like 40 to 50 percent. Employment rates are low. It's worse for, for young people. So if you give the sons a job, maybe they'll sell you the land and they have a mandate to do these kinds of things. So, you know, it's another one of those things where historically public infrastructure has not been emphasized. But I think you'll start to see that change pay off, hopefully over the next five to ten years. And in our experiment, this is where we can start to already see some of the costs racking up as despite rail being a far cheaper option, largely due to the fact that because India imports so much of its energy needs at such a large cost to the average consumer, only 17% of goods destined for Indian ports actually end up being transported by rail, with road still dominating 71% of all major cargo transport for long cross-country journeys. Again, spiking and driving up the demands for fuel in the country and clogging up the roads, which has all sorts of other knock-on effects as well. But we'll put the road and rail aside for a minute, and let's move to the port now. This is where another set of infrastructure problems really begin to appear, largely because China is an export-focused economy and has focused a lot of energy and time into making sure this port can get the cargo and gear out of the docks as quick as possible, whereas India is not as focused on its export economy at the moment. Now, when we look at the average turnaround time, this being the time from when a ship arrives in the port until it departs from the port, having unloaded its cargo and loaded cargo back on, for China, that's usually around five days. Whereas the average port in India, turnaround time is actually around 22 days on average. So even though we're making the same product with the same company, using the same modes of transport and shipping roughly to the same market, for China, we're looking at around 17 to 21 weeks for the iPhone to appear on the market. Whereas for India, we're waiting 23 to 31 weeks, a possible difference of 14 weeks or about three and a half months for the same product. And this disparity here should give us a bit of an idea on why international market competitiveness goes far beyond just the cost of labor and energy costs. But what I want to ask you is how they're actually going to address this issue. Because even if they are slightly cheaper, which often because of things like currency manipulation, they're not, it's much harder to attract investment if their product takes three and a half months longer to produce and get to market. So I want to ask you, if India largely knows where these problems lie, why not spend the money to fix it? Why not go down that same road that China did in the early 1990s and effectively just take on lots of debt, building up this key infrastructure that really does improve your export competitiveness? Is it the lack of political will or is it lack of access to cheap capital that would prevent them from doing this? I think the big question is the public infrastructure push that's happening right now. Will it draw in private investment and therefore increase growth rates and then pay off? Because you're right, 
India's uh, budget deficit, especially when you include state governments, is quite high. And so it, it does need its public infrastructure projects to pay off in order to have a sustainable debt path over the next five to 10 years. And I think that's the jury is still out on that. So if you look at private investment as a share of GDP, it's actually fallen from about 12% at the start of Modi's term in 2014, it's closer to 10% now. Uh, that's not great. You know, you really want that number to pick up. And I've been asking banks and asset managers and companies here, are you investing? And you know, you hear the anecdotes, like I told you earlier about the Foxconn investment in India, but it hasn't actually changed the overall macro number yet. And, and that's why FDI is, is probably the more relevant number. And as mentioned before, this year, uh, because of global financial conditions tightening, it's gotten a bit worse. And from what we found, the amount of funding, the amount of FDI coming in, how the FDI can be spent, as well as what the government prioritizes in infrastructure spending also varies wildly from state to state. And now if we just go back to our theoretical iPhone scenario for a minute, we found when we were playing that out that yes, whilst during the process we had to travel through four different Chinese states, the laws, taxes, regulations, and standards between them were all roughly the same for logistical purposes. And particularly when coordinating with local officials, within the Chinese systems with their different levels of government. They were all roughly working together in our scenario here, likely because frankly, they're all the same party and it's a one party state. Whereas when we ran through the scenario in India, whilst we only actually ended up traveling through three states, the rules and paperwork and authorities between them were vastly different from one to the next. With one of the experts I spoke with on this one, that this whole problem becomes even more exponentially difficult the further south we go in the country, as the laws in the south are often quite different to the laws in the north particularly at the lower levels of government. But again, a lot of this will hinge on how much influence these states have in the logistical process. So can you take us through how much power these states in India have and how different the rules tend to be from state to state? You're absolutely right that states have huge amounts of power. In fact, that is a common comment you'll get from business leaders here, which is people focus too much on the central government, on Modi, when state governments actually matter tremendously for ease of doing business. And that's why you see such regional divergence across India, right? You have states like Tamil Nadu or Karnataka or Maharashtra with these global cities that are quite rich in, in many ways and functional business sectors. But then you also have uh, states that are much less developed on, on all kinds of measures like Bihar and, and Jharkhand. And I think the regional divergence is explained in large part by the quality of institutions across all these different states. And that's why if you're a new company and you're setting up business in India, you're not going to go to one of the less functional states. You're probably going to go to Gujarat for industry or maybe Tamil Nadu more recently because the ease of doing business is so different. So the government has to do a better job of basically getting buy-in from state governments, the chief ministers, towards its national economic vision. I don't think it's been able to do that yet. Maybe in the next five to 10 years, that'll slowly happen. But if you actually look at the share of total governmental employees at different levels of government, and, and Devesh Kapoor, who's an economist, has, has done, done this analysis really well. Basically, India, I think it's something like 15% of all government employees are at local governments. Whereas if you look at America or China, it's something closer to 60%. So India, most of its governmental state capacity exists at the, the federal and state level and has very, very weak local governments compared to these other large countries. And the, the argument a lot of economists will make is it's very imbalanced and that's caused the quality of local service delivery to be quite poor. So if you look at things that might fall under local government, things like 
know, sanitation, things like quality of education, your schools, healthcare, et cetera. In India, especially in some of these poor states, quality is much lower than what you had in US or China at, at this stage in development. India relies pretty heavily on the states, the federal government to do all this stuff. Um, but the risk of that is you don't get as much feedback, right? Your local governmental leaders are the one who are close to the ground. They know what policies are needed for their local area. And a lot of these problems aren't the end of the world if India was to continue down the path of being very inwardly focused, that manufacturing and being a big player on the world stage wasn't the primary goal for the Indian government. As right now, as an example, whilst last year China produced 28.7% of the world's global manufacturing needs, India only produced around 3.1% of the global manufacturing needs. Now, India has stated that it wants to get away from this agricultural sector and it wants to put itself out as a manufacturing and exporting juggernaut, in which case it will require a major shift in the Indian economy. If Modi was to, let's say, wake up tomorrow and decide to completely focus on exports to drive the Indian economy forward, do you think that would solve the problem? Or have they maybe missed the boat on that option? The problem with appreciating the rupee, trying to boost exports, copying the China model, is sort of that China already did it. So basically, global manufacturing is extremely competitive right now. The kind of value capture you can have is not as great or as high as it was when China's export boom was happening in the 90s and 2000s. And secondly, manufacturing is far more automated now than it used to be. So one stat I was just looking at is if you compare 2010 to 1980, for example, you need five times fewer workers to operate an equally sized factory in India. So in terms of creating jobs, I don't think manufacturing is the silver bullet that it used to be in terms of development. The portion of the argument that I do agree with is that you do need exports if you want to grow at a really fast clip of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12%, right? Because your local economy is too small in terms of purchasing power to kind of stimulate growth that fast. So you have to export to the world. But for the reason stated, a big chunk of it is it's about services. Because I think that's where India does have, have a lot of strength. It actually is a leading exporter in uh, low to medium skilled services. The IT services sector in India, people call it the world's back office. You have companies like Infosys, Tata, consulting services, Wipro, that are really quite remarkable. And I think you can lean into that, right? Why stop at IT services, move up the value chain? In order to build Indian service brands that are serving the world, what do you need? Well, you need much stronger human capital. You need to invest in universities. You need more designers. You need more marketers. When you talk to CEOs in India, they on honestly don't actually tell you that their constraint is manufacturing workers. They can find those. Their constraint to building big global brands and that export to the world is actually at the marketing level. It's actually convincing consumers in other countries to buy Indian brands, right? How do you create the next major car company? How do you make it from India rather than from another country? So when sometimes when people throw around the word, you should focus on this sector and not that sector. I sort of raise my eyebrows because you sort of need to do all of it in a country this big. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. 
This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So by now it should be pretty obvious that India and China are two very different nations with very different systems of government, very different levels of authority between the different levels of government, and frankly very different prioritizations on how they want to develop their economies. Now at the moment, India has proclaimed itself a bold new path forward, with Modi standing at the recent G20 in India talking about India being the leader of the global south. But this vision of India as a superpower, a country that is the biggest trading partner to almost everybody around it, how realistic is that scenario? Where will India be by the coveted 2030 spot, the year it proclaims to become a superpower? Well, to answer that, we turn to our final guest. Part 4. Inadequate Interest he's found himself in a bit of a policy challenge that a number of other developing economies have faced, and that is how to balance soaring demand in India for energy with the desire to transition to cleaner energy sources. And so indeed, coal is still India's biggest source of energy. It's really the only fuel that India has at high scale indigenously. It has to import pretty much everything else that it uses Coal continues to be king, and the reports that Coal India, which is the big state-run coal firm, shows that for all we talk about this growing out of the clean energy economy, which Modi is committed to doing, the immediate-term needs are to look to what you have in the biggest supply at this moment, because India doesn't have the luxury of just cold turkey going off fossil fuels. Michael Kogelman is the director of the Wilson Center's South Asia Institute, having managed the South Asia portfolio at the Wilson Center since 2007. He also leads the center's programming and research in the region, specializing in Pakistan, India, and Afghanistan. On top of that, he's also a writer for Foreign Policy magazine, and he's widely recognized as one of the sharpest analysts when it comes to these theaters. But to us, he's also a multi-time veteran of the Red Line and a great friend of the show. So we're thrilled to have him back on the program today. The Indian government's um, position is that it needs cheap oil, and, and Russia can provide that. If other countries, including the United States, were able to offer oil at a comparable price point, then you'd start to see India shifting away from Russia. So having covered this region for a very long time now, how would you sum up India's current economic position as opposed to 10 years ago when Modi first came into power? We've seen India come a long way over the last few decades. As you know, during its first few decades of existence as an independent state post-colonial period, it was very focused on import substitution, this notion of self-sufficiency and having no interest in engaging commercially with the West and so on. That was very ideological in a sense because it was a leader of the non-aligned movement. But you know, it's really started to change how it conducts its economic policy since that critical 1991, which was that time when India was facing the risk of economic catastrophe until the finance minister at the time, Manmohan Singh, decided to essentially open India up 
It got to a point that we actually had the Reserve Bank of India had to put hunks of gold onto a helicopter and send them over to the Bank of England and then a bank in Switzerland as well to avert a default. So Manmohan Singh made that decision to open up to the world. So at the same time, I think that for political reasons, including right now with the Modi government, there is this view of the need to project strength and self-sufficiency and the ability to develop and manufacture at home. And it's a sensitive issue politically for India because I would argue that one of its biggest economic challenges is its manufacturing sector, which is plagued with outdated equipment and technology, especially in the defense production sector. Which I'd love to get into, but we'd probably need a full hour just to talk about the Arjun tank project. So for now, let's pivot back to infrastructure. Now, earlier on in the piece, we laid out some of the difficulties operating within India because of its current infrastructure, how between the frequent blackouts across certain regions of the country or the inadequate transportation infrastructure, these delays and challenges often end up adding 14% to the expenses of most goods, as opposed to the BRICS average of 10% or the US average of 8%. Now, in your opinion, how much of a constraint is this existing infrastructure in being able to actually carry out this export revolution they're trying for? Is it actually going to be possible to get to that next stage without massive overhauls of what India currently has available to it? Old-fashioned infrastructure, so to speak, tends to be a major constraint. You have infrastructure across India, whether you're talking about railroad tracks or roads or bridges that are in disrepair and having all kinds of problems. And the railroad industry, you've had a number of, of serious accidents, uh, deadly accidents, where you have so many people using infrastructure that's so fragile that it can't be supported. Now, the interesting thing is that India's rail service, which is state-owned, is one of the biggest sources of employment in the country. So there's an irony here that you know, theoretically this should be a major uh, growth driver because you've got such high levels of employment in this area, but that's not the case at all. Well, what about the increasingly crowded roads, where the majority of India's transportation is actually being done at the moment? Bad roads, you know, they get stuck, you have problems, not able to cross a bridge, then it doesn't take long for the produce to go bad, and then it can't be sold. So it's very basic, fundamental constraints like that that have really constrained India's economy on a number of levels. And it's easy to forget that when we hear about these great stories of visation and these sparkling new cities with all these nice roads and bridges and overpasses and metro systems and all that. But keep in mind that India is still, demographically speaking, rurally dominant in the sense that most people in the country still live in rural areas. And uh, you've got a lot of economic activity taking place out there as well. And with those infrastructure problems, it's really hard to move forward. And we have already talked about some of the problems these infrastructure projects are likely to face. But one of the major problems is the fact that a lot of these highways and infrastructure projects will likely end up crossing state lines, or municipal boundaries at least, which for the federal government means they'll be forced to work with lots of different political parties, political ideologies, and opposing points of view, often having to butt heads with officials and state politicians who are sometimes being genuine and looking out for their constituents' interests, and other times are just state politicians looking to make a name for themselves by giving Modi a hard time. As for India, it's not like the politics of China or Vietnam, where it's all the same party and you can effectively just smash things through. For India, a lot of these projects actually require consensus, deals, pork barreling, and a whole range of inefficiencies and corruptions that continue to chip away at these projects ever actually being completed. So, in your opinion, how much does this devolution of powers 
between the levels of government actually impact the possibility of these big federal infrastructure programs actually going forward? Certainly one could argue that democracy is under assault on, on many levels, but it is a democratic country. And that means that you have the need for buy-in from so many different stakeholders across so many different bureaucracies, both in terms of the national government, but also in terms of state governments. And of course, even though Modi's BJP party is very popular, very powerful, controls the government at the center, it controls the government in many states, there are a number of states in India that are not controlled by the BJP. And so that can entail some issues sometimes where when you have some type of trans-state infrastructure project like railroads, that requires buy-in agreement from state governments that sometimes don't get along or because they're led by rival parties. One of the most fascinating examples here is a river sharing agreement that Modi and India have been wanting to sign with Bangladesh for many, many years over something called the Tista River, a river that flows into both countries. Now, the Tista River flows through a state in India called West Bengal. The chief minister there, the head of the state, is a very prominent political figure named Mamata Banerjee. She is a bitter rival of Modi, and this has caused significant tensions when it comes to the issue of this pending river-sharing deal that Modi wants to sign with Bangladesh. He's from a different party. They don't get along. And the way laws work in India, this is fascinating, Modi cannot sign that river-sharing deal with Bangladesh's government because Banerjee, a, a, a chief minister in another state, doesn't like the deal because she's afraid that it will lead to more water insecurity in her state. So bottom line is, yes, you're very right that in India... You can't just move quickly. And this is why when you talk about these huge infrastructure development projects, you know, if China decides it wants to build a dam on the Brahmaputra River or wherever, it does it. It'll do it and it'll do it very quickly. I think even at the federal level, Modi probably doesn't have as much control over everything as a lot of people might assume he does. It was only just a couple of years ago that India witnessed significant protests against three farm bills that had been introduced by the Modi government. These reforms that Modi introduced were aimed at liberalizing the agricultural sector by allowing farmers to buy and sell produce outside of these government-regulated markets and enter into contracts with private buyers, effectively that the state would no longer be subsidizing these local markets and guaranteeing minimum prices on the produce that farmers would bring to the market. However, somewhat understandably, Indian farmers feared these changes would reduce their overall income and leave them vulnerable to exploitation by corporations as this bill would allow foreign equity and foreign investment to come into the sector to try and make it more efficient. And so, the farmers kicked off with extensive demonstrations right across the country, but particularly in the north of India. With these demonstrations being so extensive, that Modi would actually end up backing down and withdrawing the bill. Now, if the Modi government, which is arguably the most legislatively powerful government we've seen in a long time in India, can't get a basic farming reform bill passed, a bill that frankly, is very close to what the Chinese did decades ago. How does Modi expect to pass even less popular reform bills, like the revaluation of the rupee or the cutting of subsidies for basic Indian manufacturing in order to make it competitive? If Modi can't pass a basic farming bill, what hope does he have of being able to completely transform and reform the entire Indian economy? Basically, these laws were meant to bring more of a sense of liberalization and privatization to the farming industry, to make it easier for farmers to sell their wares. But the farmers that were affected by this were very unhappy, and you had one of the rare cases during the Modi era where you had large, mass, sustained protest against the government. This mostly happened in the states of, in the states of Punjab and Haryana, which are some of the main 
breadbasket states in India. So they opposed these laws because they thought that they, they wouldn't be able to make as much revenue. And so, again, very rare during uh, almost 10 years in office, he backed away. He took away those laws, which was fascinating. I mean, he is not one to back down from resistance, but he stepped back. And I think that is so significant. And it sort of reflects this longstanding tension point in Indian politics, where you have the option of passing reforms that might be politically risky because you could upset a lot of people, including a key constituency base like farmers. But these are laws that potentially over the long term can bring your country a lot more economic stability and sustainability, including in a key sector like agriculture, which is one of India's major drivers of growth, one of its major economic sectors, even though it's been highly inefficient for a number of reasons. And we saw that Modi essentially conceded space here. He was willing to take the political route. So, yeah, this is going to continue to be a challenge for, for India. And the subsidies continue to be a big deal. I would argue that in the area of agriculture, irrigation is, is a big issue in the sense that for many years, India's government has subsidized for farmers the most wasteful form of irrigation, flood irrigation. It has not been willing to subsidize more water-efficient irrigation, drip irrigation, which is used in a number of other countries. So what does this mean? It means that you don't hurt your cause politically as much, but it means that you're contributing to what is becoming an increasingly serious water crisis in India. Right now, India is trying to pull more people out of this agriculture sector, so maybe it has more leeway to put in some of these reforms. But the two sectors it's relying on to fill that gap also have structural flaws sitting at the bottom of them. Whilst people talk about the growth in the automotive sector, most of the Indian automotive sector only makes cars for the Indian market because of the massive restrictions that the government has placed on the Indian auto industry. And Japanese, Chinese, or other countries' cars were allowed to sell into the Indian market without having to use a local subsidiary or have locals do the final assembly. It's widely assumed that a lot of these Indian auto manufacturers would pretty much cease to exist within a very short amount of time. And if we look at the tech sector, with India waving the flag that companies like Foxconn are going to be the savior of the country, Foxconn right now is kind of hedging their bets, setting up factories across a wide range of countries, as yes, to diversify their supply chain and prevent any one catastrophe bringing the company down, but also to test the waters and see which countries are better to work with and easier to do business in. So the fact that Foxconn's put investment into India now doesn't necessarily mean that they'll either expand it or even keep that investment where it is as is wide speculation that Foxconns have been much more impressed with their factories and workers in Vietnam than they have with their ones in India. But when you look at industries like this, and I'm particularly talking about the tech sector here, what do you think stops them getting much more deeply involved here in India? There are some concerns about the labor force in India. We hear all these stories about how tech is such a big growth driver in India, which it is. But my understanding is that some of these tech companies that are considering coming into India, they're a bit concerned that there wouldn't be enough highly qualified laborers to tend to their needs. And let's face it, if you're talking about the likes of Apple or Foxconn or whatever the case may be, these are huge projects and they need significant amounts of labor. And it's interesting. This is one thing we haven't talked about yet, that one of the persistent obstacles for India's economic growth has been persistent unemployment. And for a number of reasons, the labor force is woefully underrepresented. Despite this youth bulge and despite the seemingly ready availability of young qualified workers, including in tech, 
from some of these uh, tech companies. And I think they feel that uh, some of the other countries that would be considered as places to relocate uh, production to, where that's less of a problem. So the broader evergreen concerns that foreign investors have had about India for a number of years, and that includes everything ranging from oppressive levels of red tape, bureaucracy, as well as you know problematic taxing policies, not giving foreign companies enough control over what they're doing. You know, these challenges or perceptions of these challenges endure are still very strong among foreign investors, including uh, many from the tech sphere. We hear these stories about services-generated growth, but as the infrastructure continues to atrophy, that suggests that you're going to need a lot more investment, capital. So if we are seeing capital leaving the country at the moment, and most of the prescribed reforms that are probably needed for India being politically untenable, the future seems like it might hold a bit of a mixed bag for India. So where does that put India's superpower predictions, the calls of India being a superpower by 2030? either economically or geopolitically, do you see it being able to have the same sort of economical influence that China has been wielding to admittedly varying levels of success with its projects like BRI that are given Beijing massive amounts of influence throughout all corners of the globe? Are you expecting India to be able to build up the capacity to launch a similar campaign? Or will India just continue down this path it has at the moment, having a massive GDP but a low GDP per capita? having quite large amounts of money for the government to wield, but also having the people with incredibly small amounts of purchasing power. You know, where do you see India going forward over the next few years? I think the simple answer is that uh, India does not have the, the capacity to do what China has done. It's a poorer country than China, and I would argue that it does not have the technical capacity for such a grandiose project, I would say years and years, for India to be able to be in a position where it could mobilize and start building out a huge infrastructure project around the world. India is making efforts to become more of a, a global player with infrastructure development, but again, it just doesn't have the capacity to do what China is able to do. So the Indian economy is a lot more complicated than I think most people probably realize. And whilst, yes, we did cover a lot of the concerns present within its foundationals, it does also have a lot of good signs in the economy as well, such as Modi's calls for adopting more green tech in hopes of trying to lower the country's reliance on importing oil. India also doesn't have the massive demographic challenges present within China, Japan, or Russia. And on top of that, it already has an existing high-tech sector, largely responsible for things like its space program, which is a lot more than most countries have access to. These are all things that put it miles ahead of most of the countries we cover here on the show. And as much as yes, we have laid out the concerns with the Indian economy, the last thing I want you to do is walk away from this piece thinking I'm all doom and gloom on India. None of our guests completely are. This piece was more designed as, for lack of a better word, a bit of a reality check. That just because India's GDP is very high, doesn't mean all of the other fundamentals are high as well. That by just the metric of having lots of people doing things in the economy, won't actually get India to where it needs to be. It's going to actually take a fair bit of reform and work for India to reach that status. And just because India isn't doing those reforms at the speed that South Korea, Japan, Taiwan or China has in the past, doesn't mean they're not progressing at all. Even now, with just what they have at the moment, they still have a GDP that is just behind Japan, Germany, China and the United States, having even overtaken their former colonizers just a few years ago which is not a bad place to start if you're hoping to supercharge an economy. Obviously, people will take a lot of different bits of information away from this piece, 
But the key point that I took away from it was that yes, for India to get where they want to go is going to take a lot of work. And to get where they want to go quickly is going to take a lot of work and even more risk. For a world looking to decouple from China, India may not be the silver bullet everyone's looking for, but it sure does have the potential to be. Thank you so much for checking out the show this week. These big economic analysis episodes always take a long time to pull together. And we know this because it's an episode topic we've been batting around for quite a long time. But we do hope that by going this deep into it, we could give you a bit of an idea on why we were so fascinated by the subject and why we were interested in taking the time to dig into it. And I'm also sure it won't be the last time we talk about it, as whether it's here or via an analysis piece posted on our website or over on our sister channel, Context Matters, I'm very certain this won't be the last time we'll be discussing the Indian economy. Now, if you want to be made aware of when we do put out that next big economic deep dive, you can follow all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Blue Sky, Mastodon, Threads, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Red Line Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElliotOz. Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each month to help myself and the team keep the show going. And speaking of amazing Patreons, this week I'd like to thank Alexander Woolgarden, Adrian Smith, Jens Nordberg, Josh Knight, Hello there, 007, and a very special thank you to Sam, who are the latest patrons to sign up as of the time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like these guys, and we cannot thank them enough for all their support of the show. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, and you want special access to content like our recent workshops unpacking the Taiwan invasion plans, or our crash course on Uzbekistan's armed forces, then you can sign up to our Patreon today, links for which should be in the description. To all of you who already have, and to all of you who will sign up, we cannot thank you enough, and we thank you for all your support of the show. But for now, this week's episode on the Indian economy is all thanks to you guys. As usual, here are three book recommendations. The first is Why Nations Failed, by a friend of the show, Darren Ace Moglu, one of my all-time favorite books, unpacking what it takes to build a functional state. The second is India is Broken, A People Betrayed, by this week's guest, Ashoka Modi, for a deeper look at many of the issues brought up by Ashoka in this episode. And the third is India and Asian Geopolitics by Shiv Shankar Menon for a look at how India fits economically and geopolitically within this region of the world. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Valina Chakanova, Ashoka Modi, Arjun Ramani, and Michael Googleman. This was an absolutely amazing panel to try and tackle this issue, and I can't thank you all enough for jumping on it. And as I pointed out earlier on, it wasn't just the guests who helped out on this one. There is a lot of research and effort that had to go into this one to put it all together. So I'd like to thank my staff for all their help on the episode, starting with the primary researchers for this piece, Raul Devanarayanan, Kashyap Maheshwari, Genevieve Dodlamay, Lorenz Van Kielbilk, and Daniela Givella. Your work on this episode was absolutely amazing. And on top of those guys, I'd like to thank the rest of my team as well. That being Cameron Gale, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniela Givella, Genevieve Dodlamay, Nate Ostilla, Nick McNally, Sean Cotter-Lem, Isaac Gibbs, Andrew Garbery, Scott Missler-Ferguson, Jemima Pentreath, Ben Nutter, Mason Wise, Gabriel Lane, Lorenz Van Kierbilk, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers. Jamie Tano, our media director. Raul Devanarayanan, our OSIN analyst. Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News. Mark Spencer, our second voice of artists. Kashyap Maheshwari and Alexander Woolgarten, our online team. Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner. Marissa Rafter, our videographer. And Nick Much, our field correspondent. I cannot thank this entire team for all of the hard work and dedication they put into episodes like this. And I'm looking forward to seeing what they blow me away with next. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening and good night.
The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.